This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. This is Todd Pruitt, as always, uh, happy to be with you today. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. And uh, this is uh, the second program uh, that I want us to focus on um, Carl's new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, this book has been getting, I think justifiably so, um, a good bit of attention and kudos to Crossway for um, pursuing this and wanting this uh, in print. Um, Carl, at, at, at the risk of, of puffing your ego up too massively. Take the risk, man. Take the risk. It's worth it. It's definitely worth it. <laughs> it this, this, is, this is a marvelous book. It's a very important book. There's a lot of good books. Um, there's not necessarily a lot of important books. I believe this is an important book. I think, I think what Tim Challies recently wrote, um, in his very kind uh, words about your book, were were objectively true. I think this is a uh, very important book. I think um, uh, th- this this year we're going to be saying um, and 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 looking at this book as as providing an, an extremely important contribution to the overall discussion that we are having in our culture about what it means to be human. Now, what's interesting. One of the things that's interesting about your book, and I found this, and you have commented on this before, is that if a Christian wants to pick up this book and right out of the gates from chapter one, read something that is a, a frontline kind of attack on homosexuality, transgenderism, that kind of thing, you know, directly right from chapter one, they might be a little dismayed. Because what you are doing, first of all, is you're getting behind those issues. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're basically looking at the issues of polyamory, homosexuality, transgenderism, all the chaos related to sexuality and personhood. You're you're basically saying those are presenting problems, but there's something far bigger behind it all. And that's where you're trying to place your finger and say, here's here's why we are having these things. That's that you would call that an accurate description, I assume. Yes, I, I mean the book has a number of, of things driving it. One of them is I'm a historian. I want to set everything in context. So when I see something happening in history or in our culture, the question for me is: Okay, what are the factors that are in play? What's happened in the past? What's what's shaped the culture that people think and act in this kind of way? So on one level, it's just a general application of of what I do as a historian. Uh, there's also a, I would say, a sort of pastoral dimension to it. Maybe pastoral is not quite the right word, but certainly my experience now teaching undergraduates 
and of you know interacting with younger people in the church is that we're seeing the rise of a generation of I would say good sincere Christians who want to be faithful to the Bible and what the Bible teaches, but the pressures from the world are such that they're left confused about exactly what the Bible teaches and and why the Bible teaches what it does. And I think part of my my thought in the way I, I wrote the book was. I want to enable my readers to to develop skills for kind of decoding the culture, if you like, realizing what's nature, what's nurture, what's natural, what's cultural, uh, what's biblical, what's cultural. Uh, And I don't think you connect with a lot of Christians today by pulling out the flamethrower on page one and and just torching all of your enemies. I think there is a, a persuasive dimension to the way we need to to approach Christians. Uh, I've actually put it this way a couple of times. I I think that the urgent need of this hour is not so much to explain the church to the world as it is to explain the world to the church. There's a kind of catechetical reversal that's taken place, I think, uh, because the divergence of the culture and the divergence of of Christianity are so dramatic. And particularly in America, where Christians for the longest time enjoyed a kind of broad Christendom in the culture and were never seriously challenged on why they believed a whole lot of things that they believe about morality, sexuality, etc., etc. The the transformation here has been so incredibly fast compared to Europe or places like that, where the church was slowly but surely put under pressure over many generations. Uh, the story's different there to here. I think it, in an odd way, America's cultural Christianity has left the church singularly unprepared to understand the new culture, if that makes sense. So that's another dimension to, if you like, the rhetoric of the book. It's not... Uh, uh, Parche publishes weekly. It's not a preachy book, actually. It's, it's an attempt to sort of set out some basic guidelines that I, you know, I hope that somebody in the LGBTQ movement could read the first nine or ten chapters of the book and say, yeah, I, I agree with that history. It seems to be a pretty straightforward account of how we got to where we have in society. You and I were talking earlier, and... Um it was quite interesting that Publishers Weekly had reached out to you. I mean, for um, for writers of books, oftentimes aimed at Christians in the church or Christian scholarship, et cetera, certainly coming out of Christian publishing houses, uh, Publishers Weekly is, is usually not beating their door down uh, to talk to them. Nevertheless, Publishers Weekly contacted you. They interviewed you. It was a Pleasant interview, non-combative, correct? Very, very great interview, and a very good account of the interview as well. And then, an, you know, an interesting review that uh, was was much not done, I think, by the woman who interviewed me, done by an anonymous person, but was much more uh, blunt. And and I think culturally that was interesting because the most charitable reading of a review like that would be okay, even being neutral on stuff like LGBTQ history now even simply describing and not affirming is actually to be seen to be engaged in some kind of oppositional position. Uh, 
And it was very interesting in, in the book, I lay out an argument. One of the arguments I, I lay out is that uh, in society now, we have a situation where pretty much the only moral imperative behind uh, that, that shapes the morality of a sexual encounter is the issue of consent. Is it between consenting individuals? And in the book, I, I point out that if, if you simply hang the morality of sex on consent, there are, there are a host of problems that kick in. Um, one of them is that it, it gives you no grounds for objecting to incest for example, because if you've got consenting adults uh, using contraception, then uh, consent's the only thing that applies. Why should it be illegal? And, you know, tragically, pedophilia. Do I think pedophilia is going to be made legal anytime soon in the United States? No, but we don't require kids to consent to a whole heap of things that we do to them, sending them to school, making them eat their greens, going to bed at a certain time. well, that became, in, in the sort of the, the response to me, Tr- Truman equates gay people with pedophiles. No. Truman is simply pointing to a, a weakness, a pathology in our culture of sexual morality that, frankly, we need to address. And hashtag me too, in a, in a way, has tried to address this by pointing to the complexity of the notion of consent. Um, but it just it's just a reminder that this is a hot-button issue where any perceived failure to affirm the dominant moral consensus is considered to be a seditious, hateful kind of kind of act. Right. Now, I want to get into um, that particular issue in terms of a theological implication to what you just said, um, because this is where people in our churches are having to to deal with this. They're not on the job site, on the campus, that kind of thing. They're not being asked to simply not actively oppose this. They're being expected to place their benediction upon all of these things. And I heard somebody say one one time that when we know that we do not have God's blessing, we will demand your blessing. And, And now that gets us into a into a theological soul matter. When I know I don't have God's blessing, I'm going to demand your blessing. Now, I know that that is not the major thrust of your book here. However, I wonder if you could say something about to, to laypersons that are encountering now hostility yeah. for the first time, how to understand that. I, I think the first thing to, to grasp about that, again, is the broader context in which this is happening. And, and part of the burden of my book is to argue that over the last 300 years, maybe 400 years, there's been this revolution in how we understand identity that has tended to prioritize inner feelings. You know, it, it, we become psychologized selves. It's what I feel inside that really constitutes who I am, of which you know, transgenderism would be the most uh, radical example to date. You know, if I feel I'm a woman... Uh, uh, internally, even if I have a man's body externally, my feelings are my true identity. And, and you trace some of this, I mean, going back to the Romantic era, like, like this isn't a, a late 20th century invention. Now, some of the implications are, but, yeah. but you trace this back to 
19th century poetry in the Romantic era. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes way back. You know, I start with Rousseau, but that's somewhat arbitrary. You could take it back behind Rousseau. Uh, but certainly this is a deep-seated current that has been very profoundly formative over Western culture. What that does, of course, is it, it, it ultimately, in, in the late 20th century, it, it, it transformed the notion of oppression. Now, I use the example of my granddad. My granddad was alive, you know, died in 1994. My, my granddad lived through the Great Depression. If you'd asked my granddad what oppression was, he'd have said, it's not being given a fair day's pay for an honest day's work. It's not being able to find a job. He'd have had categories of oppression that were very material and very outwardly directed. He needed a job to feed his family, those kind of things. What we find in the late 20th century and, 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 and even more so today is that oppression has become, has been broadened really to include psychological oppression because we are psychologized selves. The most obvious example would be the use of racial epithets. You know, we, we intuitively know that when somebody uses a racial epithet about somebody else, they're not describing them, they're doing something to them. They're damaging them. They're putting them in their place. Uh, well, there's been a massive expansion of that kind of thinking uh, within society so that we, ha we now have a situation where words are instruments of violence. What does that mean? Well, that means that things, you know, traditional liberal values, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. By liberal, I mean, you know, the Western liberal social contract. Yeah, I'm not small talking, L liberal. Yeah, right. I'm not talking Republican Democrat here. Right. The, the traditional liberal values that people of my generation, certainly before, would have just taken for granted as social goods are actually being transformed into, into evils. And what this means, ironically, you know, the real ironic twist is that a culture of radical individualism, which is what we have in America, is, has created the need for tremendous authoritarianism because somebody's got to police the language. Well, employers, uh, communities, um, uh, governments perhaps are going to be policing the language. And that's why all of a sudden, not just Christians, but anybody who holds a sort of traditional view of things, maybe even just a traditional view of private views are private and they're none of my employer's business. And, and my employer owns me nine to five, but he doesn't own what I do on Facebook at the weekends kind of thing. Um, that's why that is rapidly becoming a very implausible position to hold because speech is violence. Uh, you know, you see this with the Black Lives Matter. It's interesting that that phrase that's now being used, silence is violence. And that's the sort of the next stage where it's not simply enough not to use bad words. I've actually got to use the good words. And, and all of this, I think, flows. I shouldn't be smiling while I'm saying this. It, it it's also fits together so beautifully as a pattern, if you like. It's the aesthetics of the situation. That's why we find ourselves suddenly in a situation where, particularly those of us of my generation and before who uh, were schooled in, in the idea of freedom of speech as being basic, are finding tremendous cognitive dissonance with what's going on at the moment. And of course, the really worrying thing, I think, is that the rising generation that are often referred to as snowflakes, I think that's, that's really a misnomer because I think what we have in the rising generation is, no, that's just the latest iteration of me, two generations on. It's this ongoing process. Uh, for them, their intuitions are not that freedom of speech and freedom of religion are good things. Their intuitions 
flow the other way. They imagine society in a very different way. So this situation is, is set, I think, to, to intensify. And you know, social media has demolished like, the idea of privacy in some ways, that everything is public now. So the whole, the old liberal idea of the division between the private and the public is vanishing. So we have this amazing concurrence of things pushing us in this very, very interesting direction. Right. And, and you mentioned something that has called to my mind some very fascinating and frustrating conversations I've had on the issues of things like, you know, the tradition of the great liberal values of Western culture, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. And people my generation, our you know, 50s and, and older, look at 20-somethings and wonder why they, are, they don't seem to be that concerned about freedom of speech, that they are actually willing to give away large portions of what we've always known about freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're talking past each other generationally, because we've got younger people that don't value those things, at least in the way that they've been valued in the past. So they're willing to have those things constricted for something that they see as a greater good. Yeah, is that pretty accurate? I, I, I think so. And of course, the, you know, there are specific reasons why much of this is focused on sexuality. That's a kind of another side of the story. But absolutely, the way they conceive a personhood in a profoundly psychological way means that things like freedom of speech, you know, freedom of speech is not a guarantee of freedom, it's an opportunity to legitimate hatred and violence. That's the way the world is imagined. And I think that's the, the shift that, you know, Grove is a little exceptional. Most of our kids come from pretty conservative backgrounds. So it, it's, it's not Princeton. It's not end state. It's a little exceptional on that front. But even among kids at Grove, I'm aware that you know, the kids I, I talk to, the kids I teach, the kids I interact with generally don't think as I do. I had a, an interesting example last year. A young man wrote me. It was a great paper on why he thought that the cake baker should have been compelled to make a cake for a gay wedding. Uh, and uh, I actually drew something from the Frank Beckwith, our friend Frank Beckwith playbook. My response, I said, well, uh, his argument was, you know, it, it, it's cruel to these people and it, it doesn't cost me to, to do this. He's not really approving of it in a positive way. He's just providing with a cake. Uh, I took a, a line from something from I'd read or heard Frank Beckwith say once when he'd, he'd push back and she'd say, well, what about the Baptist pastor? What about, uh, you know, the Presbyterian couple who join the Baptist church or, or go to a Baptist church and demand that the Baptist pastor baptize their child? Should the Baptist pastor be made to do that? And it was interesting discussion I had with this. I was kind of, wow, I, I, I never thought of that. And you can get younger people, I think, to think about these if you pick on, on issues that perhaps touch them and their freedoms. But it struck me as interesting that the, the student had never thought more broadly about what are the implications of shutting down freedom of speech, freedom of exercise uh, of religion, or restricting the notion of freedom of religion to what goes on between 11 and 12 on a Sunday in a sanctuary somewhere, or if you're in the OPC or your church, Todd, between 11 and 12 and 
six and seven, of course, because we still have evening service. <laughs> Twice the free exercise of everybody else. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, getting students to think outside the box, I think, is critical. And that's why, you know, I already alluded to it in the book. I have this section on, I have a section on Peter Singer on abortion. I have a section on consent as a foundation for sexual morality because I'm trying to get the readers to think, wow, actually, the cake shop case does have a connection to abortion, does have a connection to hookup culture, that all of this is a function of a major cultural shift of which these things are symptomatic. Yeah, and, and as I think about the, those symptoms, and of course you deal with um, uh, transgenderism, the, the, the gender chaos, which is extraordinary how quickly that has come on and how powerfully it has commanded um, the attention and the allegiance of, of so many people in the culture. And one of the things, I, I was reading an article just the other day on, on the damage, for instance, that hormone therapy does to children. Um, uh, very often will render them uh, sterile, um, in some cases only after a few treatments. Um, and, and now we have parents who are doing this to celebrate their child's you know, newfound gender, that, that, that sort of thing. Th those things are not uh, happening among a majority of families, but they certainly are getting a lot of attention that parents are actually doing this for their, their minor children. And, and one of the things I thought was that that very same parent would be horrified if their child said, uh, my right leg does not belong to me. I'd like it surgically removed now. Um, so, so explain why that parent or why these trans activists yeah. would say a surgeon can't remove a person's right leg yeah but they can surgically mutilate them in terms of gender yeah that's how are we thinking that way well that's another frank uh, out of frank beckwith's playbook actually good old frank i mean he uses that example in class where students will talk you know be pro-transgender and say well what happens you know why is it okay to amputate a man's pardon the a man's penis uh, but not okay to amputate his leg if he says his leg isn't part of him. And that kind of brings it in, into focus for them. I think the, the answer to that question is the specific way in which sexuality and gender play in our culture. You know, part of the book is tracing out why this radical individualism has taken on a distinctively sexual shape in the 20th century. And I think sexual matters uh, have a peculiar cachet in our culture. Because mainly, I think, through the influence of people like Sigmund Freud, who noted, I think he noted correctly, that, that sexual instincts and sexual desires are very, very powerful parts of what it means to be a human being. And that kind of morphs into our sexual desires become fundamentally constitutive of who we are. So any curbing of that desire is a curbing of you as a person. It's rendering you inauthentic. Now, Freud, to his credit, was... You know, he felt it was necessary to curb sexual desires, to have civilization. It meant we're all, to some extent, miserable because we can never be fully fulfilled, but we do live longer than we would otherwise do. So, you know, Freud was, was an interesting figure, but the left pick up on this and really come to identify uh, psychological oppression, specifically with 
traditional sexual codes that they see reinforcing the bourgeois family and creating mindless automans who will simply go along with the bourgeois structure of society. So if you want to change society, one of the things you've got to do is dismantle sexual codes. You've got to dismantle the nuclear family. That's become deeply embedded in our culture. But people have never read the new left. It's just become part of the air we breathe. Add to that that these sexual identities become, for want of a better word, sort of trendy. And all human beings, I, I think the German philosopher Hegel nails this, all human beings want to be free. We want to think that we're the agents of our own actions, of our own destiny. But we also want to belong. And you know, how can we be free and how can we belong? Well, we, we find a way of fitting in with the environment around us, of being recognized, to use the sort of technical terminology, being recognized by society around us. Having a transgender child, being transgender, it makes you somebody in today's society. It plugs you into a community. Uh, in, in an era where communities, traditional communities are collapsing, it plugs you into community. Being lesbian or gay plugs you into a community. And that's, in saying that, I'm not being pro or con at this point. I'm simply describing the, the situation. The rationale, yeah. yeah. yeah having, the, the appeal of it. Having said that, I think what you say about transgenderism gives me hope that the tide may turn on this one because mm -hmm. I think, not in my lifetime, but I think in 20, 30, 40 years' time, you will have children suing their parents, right. suing doctors, and suing insurance companies right. for having paid for them to be chemistry sets for their, for their mum and dad. A lot of human carnage between now and then. But this is America, folks. And as soon as the insurance companies start having to shell out big checks in legal suits, there will be a change. It may not happen overnight, but there will be a change in public morality. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as um, a number of attorneys realize that they have some major class action lawsuits oh, on yeah. their hands to, oh, uh, yeah. to, to make millions and millions from, yeah. it could change. And, and that is interesting because I've, I've, I've thought this, as pessimistic as I, as I typically like to be, looking at the, the numbers. So, you know, you have, uh, I think a recent survey has, has shown that um, uh, close to 90% of people who were, quote, you know, maybe confused about their gender as childhood, uh, grow out of it. Um, you know, surprise, surprise, children, minors can be confused about sexuality in this culture. What a shocker, right? Um, and, and you're right, as soon as they're old enough to realize their parents have mutilated them chemically and, and in some cases surgically, there's going to be hell to pay for a lot of people for that. And as soon as it uh, impacts the pocketbook, uh, the culture might actually change um, but before we wrap up, you, you had an opportunity to speak to members of Congress on this issue, which is really interesting to me. How did that happen? Well, the president of Grove City College, uh, Paul McNulty, or the Honorable Paul McNulty, should I say, right. because he was uh, in, in 2005, and this shows you how politics has changed. In 2005, I think, he was unanimously confirmed as Deputy <laughs> Attorney General of the United States. Unanimously confirmed in yeah. 2005. Hard right. to believe that was just 15 years ago. Uh, yeah. He set up a group uh, based in D.C. called Faith and Law, which is... Uh, essentially a group of uh, Congress people and staffers who, who meet together, I think every Friday, uh, to hear somebody speak on a, a politics, public policy and religion related theme, Christian, Christian theme. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was 
deeply honored to be invited to give a talk mm. there. Um, it was slightly disappointing in that, you know, accepted the invitation and then everything goes to Zoom. So I don't get to go to the Houses of Congress right. to give my lecture. Right. I have to do it from my yeah. own sitting mm -hmm. room. But it was fun and it was, it was actually fascinating hearing some of the, the questions and some of the feedback because one of the things we, right. we talked about was how do we overcome some of the divisions? And Lauren Noyes, who, who runs Faith and Law now, was saying that, you know, even now friendships between Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill have to be kept secret because right. neither party will sort of, you know, the culture is such that if you're, if you're a Republican who's friend with a Democrat or vice versa, you can only meet in secret, really, <laughs> right. uh, because right. the, the level of hostility is, is so great. So it was a, a, a lovely, I was really, I felt very honored to be able to give a talk to such a, a distinguished mm -hmm. uh, group. It was a lovely time, but it was also... It kind of confirmed that, yeah, things are as bad as they as they seem right, to be right. on, on the hill at this point. Yeah, I'm, now I'm just spitballing here, but um, uh, Nancy Pelosi was not there. Uh, well, I couldn't see who was there. Uh, there were 100 <laughs> okay. people, I think, online. I, <laughs> okay. Um, I did, though. I did mention Nancy Pelosi. I pointed out that Paul spoke very respectfully of the civil magistrate, and I said, and he's talking about Nero. You know, and whatever your opinion of Nancy Pelosi is, she isn't, she isn't nearer. Come on, you know, can't, can't we be polite and respectful to those of all parties who've been placed right. in authority over us in terms of the fact that God has placed them there as our magistrates? Yeah, yeah. So, did, you, did you have an opportunity to find out about what happened to uh, Jeffrey Epstein? I, uh, I did, I did, <laughs> but uh, if, if I told you, I'd have to kill you because okay, I'm absolutely okay. sworn to secrecy. Gotcha, it. gotcha. Say no more. I think we all know what that means. People. Su but. Suffice it to say, Prince Andrew is unlikely to visit the United States anytime soon. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. The author is Carl Truman. Um, by the time that we air this, we're pretty sure it'll be uh, right around the time that the book uh, drops. And uh, we would urge you to, uh, to get a copy of this, to read it. Um, uh, the church really does need to understand uh, the culture, not so that we might mimic the culture, but so that we might speak to the various um, issues that are being raised in a way that is intelligent, um, and that's desperately needed uh, right now. So I, uh, I, I would encourage you uh, to get a copy of this book, and you may be lucky enough to win a copy for free. If you will go to mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win a copy of Carl's newest book. And uh, while you're there, please keep in mind that we are a listener-supported podcast, and if there's any way you might want to contribute uh, to the ongoing work of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, then you can do that there. It's uh, been great to have this conversation, and thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to being with you next time.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. To the Wednesday Treasure House, this part of which is brought to you by all those good Kellogg cereals. You know somebody named Gregory or Greg? Well, it comes from a Greek word, the name tree tells us, and the Greek word meaning to be watchful. Mm-hmm. If you'll be watchful, you'll see the captain give me a bowl full of Kellogg's Rice Krispies. Why, <laughs> I'd be delighted, Mr. Moose. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear those nourishing bubbles of toasted rice go snap crackle pop when they meet the milk. Mm, listen, I can hear them talking. I think they're trying to tell you something. What's that? I think they're saying, have a rice day, Captain. Oh, yes, indeed. Thank you. Rice. Right. I mean, right. Right. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that Word with those who are lost and encouraging the Church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at alliancenet.org support. That's alliancenet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.